I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome, listener. Um, this is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain podcast series. Now, you may not have heard before, so this is this is for those of you that haven't. In each episode, um, we look at different aspects of the Labour part of Labour Party's past, with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, um, introducing some new ways of thinking and making connections between Labour's history, its present and its future. Um, My name's uh, Stephen Fielding. I'm currently Professor of Political History at the University of Nottingham, and I co-present this podcast with Professor Laura Beers, who's Professor of History at the American University in Washington. Um, So hello, Laura. Hey Steve, good to be back with you. Yes, it's been a long it's been a long time. This is our first of of the new year, so it's kind of like a an old new year. Now, um, in our first podcast, which we did, it seems like a very long long way away in in the summer of last year. In our first podcast, we talked about the idea of the Progressive Alliance um, and had a sort of great discussion about that. And that's something the Progressive Alliance is something that historians have been drawn to um, in the past um, and is still something of, of a thing uh, today um, in the current politics. Often it's about, in, when it's conceived of, it's about the working class and elements of the middle class coming together, kind of more in the, in the more sort of historical sense. Um, institutionally, it's about Labour making alliances or arrangements with the Liberals or Liberal Democrats, whatever they're called at this particular moment. And today, maybe with the Greens, um, the SNP, um, it, it's it's who knows, um, and so that 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 was a focus of of, of, our, of our initial discussion. But of course, the Labour Party is itself, the Labour movement itself is made up of alliances. Um, right from the start, the Labour Party was an alliance of relatively moderate, um, even with a big C conservative trade unionists, um, socialists, Fabians. You know, the list couldn't go on. Um, and Labour has been um, often described, rightly or wrongly, as a broad church, one which unites um, the left and the right. Um, but if it's a broad church, it's a, it's a church which is almost constantly on the on the cusp of schism. And if and if all these different elements within the church can could agree to stay in the same party, they often disagree about you know 
what God looks like, whether there should be smells and bells, what should the liturgy be like. There's a lot of disputes um, across across the party. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to actually look within that Labour Alliance and, and talk with someone who knows what they're talking about, about one element of that, um, an important element of that. And often sometimes disregarded, it's often criticised by people from the right of the party. That's the Labour left. Um, and you know, no better person to really to talk about it is is Simon Hanna, who joins us as our guest. So, hello, Simon. Hello. And Simon is is the author of um, a party with socialists in it, uh, the first edition of which came out in 2018 with a foreword from um, John McDonnell. Um, and he took the story up. It's, it's a really great single volume. Um, account of the Labour left um, from the inception of the party just before up to um, just after the 2017 election. And Simon says that there's going to be a second edition um, coming out in in September, uh, so in July, which I assume will take the story up to and beyond 2019, right? Um, And he's also the author of Can't Pay, Won't Pay, um, a history of uh, not the poll tax as such, but um, opposition to the poll tax, um, which came out in 2020, which I, as you can tell, I haven't read that, but I have read A Party With Socialists In It, reviewed it, and fortunately enough, I gave it thumbs up. Um, it's something, like I say, you really should, if you're interested in the Labour Life, you really should be getting that book and maybe wait for the second edition. So it might be useful, Simon, if we just, because the Labour Party is, I mean, there are people who call themselves socialists, um, who you possibly wouldn't really consider to be socialists. Even Tony Blair called himself for a time a social hyphenist. Um, and and also, if if we decide to talk about the, the left instead of socialists, there are people, you know, is it the hard left, the soft left, um, you know, Corbynites, Benites, going further back to Bevanism. I mean, is, is, a, is there a consistent tradition, a left tradition within the Labour Party or is it something that's ever changing? Can you can you define the Labour left for us? That is a very good question and probably the hardest question to start off with because the Labour left is a very tricky thing to define. I think it was Ben Pimlott in one of uh, his books who said um, the Labour left is more of a mood than any sort of coherent sort of strategy or, or uh, philosophy. Um, I think there's some truth in that, but you know, obviously when you're writing a book about the history of the Labour left, you do have to try and come up with some definitions, otherwise it's too much of a moving target. Um, so one of the things that I used was Leo Panitch's um, uh, uh, kind of categories, which he was mainly using to describe factors within trade unions, but I thought it was applicable to the Labour left, obviously because of the historic connections between the trade unions and the Labour Party um, and parts of the Labour left. The, the Labour left are those part, of the, um, those part of the party that see themselves as transformative in some way, but transformative towards what they would consider socialism. Um, whereas the Labour right of the party, uh, who ended up being called moderates during the Corbyn years, this was kind of a new phrase that was brought in. They weren't right-wing Labour anymore. They were, they were, they were just called moderate Labour. Um, they are sort of more of the you know, the steady, slow, gradual shift uh, in politics, which is men- meant to generally favour the working class, but also doesn't frighten the bourgeois horses. Whereas the Labour left likes to consider itself as far more radical, 
um, you know, sort of uh, pursuing all kinds of uh, much more dangerous politics. But I guess the conclusion I draw towards the end of the book is that although the Labour left believes itself to be transformative, uh, in practice, it has often fallen short. And I think that's that's one of the critical conclusions that I come to in the book. Because your book is not, it's not, it's not uncritical of of the Labour left and, and its achievements. Um, so, I mean, but but I wondered traditionally, or at least like historically, um, right right at the start when people talked about um, you know the transformation of capitalism, the role of socialists, and there was a right and a left, and you know, going back to sort of debates between uh, the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, it was, you know, is is the Labour left really just, they, they want to get to the same place, but more quickly um, than than the Labour right? Or do they want something completely different, to, so far as you're concerned, the left and the right within the Labour Party? Um, I think there's different phases um, of it. I think that the early kind of pre-World War II Labour left um, and again, these are generalisations because because if you get down into specifics, then um, uh, this will have to be a much longer podcast. Um, the generalisation of the Labour left, I think, in those days was that they uh, were more consistently pushing towards socialism, by which they understood, um, you know, the collective ownership of the means of production and you know all that kind of stuff in clause four um, of the Labour Party constitution. Um, and their criticism of the Labour right was that they were too slow, they would prevaricate, they would pull back, they, you know, they weren't consistently rigorous enough in kind of pursuing policies which the Labour left considered to be socialist. But I think after World War II, there's a more clearer divergence between what the Labour right wants and what the Labour left wants. And um, that, that, that particularly begins to develop in the 1950s. Uh, around you know the, you know the stuff that um, Anthony Crossland is writing and the kind of the, like the so-called revisionist controversy where the Labour right begin to say, well, we've got a partly nationalised economy. Um, that's it. That's all we want. You know, sort of you know, sort of the railway should be nationalised and the you know coal should be nationalised and sort of the kind of basic fundamentals of the British economy should be run by the state, but everything else should ideally be in the private sector, but taxed you know, subjected to kind of, um, uh, you know, proper like regulation and so on. And the Labour left, generally speaking, were critical of that and say, well, no, we want to try and nationalise more of the economy. We want to take more of it into collective ownership. And that divergence, of course, only grows even more extreme under Blair, in which the denationalisation of key parts of the British economy is accepted by the Labour right. Um, and kind of Blairism just realigns Labour with the post-Thatcher right values um, a lot of the post-Thatch right values, not all of them, um, of of the kind of much more unregulated, neoliberalised economy. And, of course, that's where you begin to get the Labour left kind of emerging as a much more like distinct tendency because the rest of the parties move so far to the right. Well, that raises questions, though. I mean, you said that um, you described the left in the early period as being more wedded to socialism as defined by the nationalization of the means of production, mm. which is obviously a very narrow definition of socialism, um, you know, to begin with. But socialism is thought, when I think of the labor left, is also to do with means as well as ends, right? And the idea of a kind of, you know, more grassroots accountability, a less, um, you know, leader-centric um, way of running the party. 
And I guess I'd be curious to hear you say more about the way that those ideas have developed within the left about participatory democracy and its relationship to socialism beyond just a sort of statist ethos of what um, what socialism is. I would say one of the things that's interesting about the Labour Party's um, understanding of democracy is I think for large parts of its life, it didn't really radically diverge from the Labour right. Um, Ralph Miliband, of course, famously said that the Labour Party is dogmatic about only one thing, which is parliamentary democracy. Um, it is, you know, it is completely flexible about all, all other policies and, and, and programmes and strategies, apart from the uh, the supremacy of parliament and therefore parliamentary elections and so on that come with it being the vehicle through which you get political change either towards socialism or towards social liberalism or you know something else and I think the Labour left for a lot of their life didn't really didn't really diverge from that like they're actually quite uncreative in their thinking in terms of uh, new ways of doing politics and and so on. I mean, like there's large parts of the Labour left which are completely wedded to first past the post, for instance, as opposed to proportional representation. Um, I mean, and that I think is a very, you know, basic, not even a particularly radical proposal, um, let alone more kind of revolutionary things, you know, sort of workers' councils or, you know, anything like that, which might be seen as an alternative to the parliamentary system. Um, and I guess that's where you can begin to see a real difference between, say, the revolutionary socialists and the Labour left. You know, the revolutionary socialists are often in favour of some kind of more participatory democracy, grassroots democracy, uh, organising people from below, building alternatives to Parliament or, you know, the local councils or whatever. Um, whereas the Labour left are much more sort of um, aligned with the way that things are done at the moment. I'm not saying that they're completely unwilling to shift and, 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 and change things, but that was certainly one of the critical points that I think I picked up. So the interest of, that they haven't changed tends to be changing the structures of the Labour Party as opposed to changing the structures of the parliamentary system, because the Labour left has shown an interest since the 1960s in democratizing the Labour Party internally, but not about shifting the institutions, you would argue, of British democracy more broadly. Yes. And again, I just want to caveat everything I say with, you know, these are general points, but I think generally that is true. I think that uh, the Labour left took a turn after the mid-1970s in particular towards reforming the party, primarily because their understanding is you need to take over the party and then you take over the state. And that's how you secure some kind of path towards socialism. Whereas their, the experience of the Labour left in the 1970s was obviously the uh, uh, second Harold Wilson government and the James Callaghan government completely ditching all of the radical policies of the 74 manifestos, um, uh, you know, uh, um, isolating key left wingers like Tony Benn and people like that, and then um, doing whatever they wanted in power, which, you know, involved huge, for instance, wage restraints in the face of runaway inflation uh, which obviously um, undermined workers' living standards. And so I think the Labour left really felt very frustrated by that. And, you know, because because the 1974 manifestos had been had been so radical, uh, and then it was quite clear that none of it was really going to be implemented. Like none of the stuff the Labour left wanted was going to be implemented. And, of course, that was the beginning of the campaign for Labour Party democracy, Benism, um, and the idea that you needed to reform the party in order to, you know, be able to be 
to, to move Labour into a strong enough position to be able to implement any kind of radical changes. So in, ter- in terms of also how the left might be differentiated from the right, I mean, obviously, we, you know, everything's caveated because, of course, Labour is more than just the left and the right. Um, but uh, economic economic mm. policy, yeah. Um, so, and so, so last, this is all about post-war. Certainly post-war, a different way of doing politics, but maybe not before. But what about um, attitudes towards gender, um, sexuality, and I might as well just throw it in there, you know, imperialism, foreign policy. I mean, is there a, I mean, can you say there's a kind of a, a, a distinctive left position um, with b- between, you know, the left and the right? Oh, that is a very good question. That is, an, 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 and that is a, that is also a very complicated question, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, again, it like it kind of comes and goes in different phases. The um, the wing of the Labour Party, which was the Independent Labour Party in the run up to World War One and around and just after World War One, were generally speaking, uh, although you can't say this for all of the Independent Labour Party, but you know, for a lot of their key leaders and activists, um, they were very much in favour of women's suffrage in a way that the Labour Party itself was um, e- either unclear or even hostile to. So I think that like there's phases like that where you can definitely say there was a wing of the party, and I think you can probably say the ILP was the left of the party in the kind of, uh, like even in the pre-World War I period, obviously it became much more left-wing as the 1920s went on until eventually leaving in the 1930s and then disintegrating. But I think even before World War I, it was, uh, you could point to it and say that this is a, 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 a leftish current within the Labour Party. Um, so I think that's like, that's an example where the left was good on that question. I would say, that, however, if you look at the Wilson government in the 1960s, um, a lot of the social reforms that came in, for instance, um, decriminalisation of homosexuality by the Labour government were not particularly associated with the left. And the left was very much fixated on the economic questions um, around nationalisation, you know, and so on, um, and 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 the right became much more theoretically interested in, and also practically interested in um, social oppression issues. I think that goes back to the point I made earlier, which is that as far as the right was concerned, the economic questions were resolved. You know, there was, you know, there was no more socialism that the that the UK needed. Um, it was. Um, like whatever the Attlee government had done, it had done. And now it was a question of focusing on equality under capitalism. Um, and I think, I mean, that was a strand that even went through into Blairism. I think, you know, like the Blairites were also, um, you know, really wanting to associate themselves with kind of equalities issues. I would be critical of that, of course, in the sense that I think that, you know, the Labour right can only ever really be hypocritical around these things. I mean, sort of, you could say that the Blairites were, you know, quote unquote, good on lesbian and gay issues and women's issues but they were terrible on the question of islamophobia for instance you know so um i don't think you can expect the right wing of the labor party when it is so integrated into the needs of british capitalism and imperialism to be consistent on any of these questions although they do like to think that they are um and just very quickly on imperialism i mean um again that like it really kind of comes and goes i mean uh, there were some people on the Labour left in the 1930s who were who were influenced by the Communist Party, and they were fierce anti-imperialists. 
um, and, you know, like disrupted parliaments um, in order to try and get debates put into parliament on the question of Indian independence. Um, but, but then there are other people on the Labour left after World War Two who um, thought the British Empire was fine, it just needed a few reforms. Um, so I think it kind of comes and goes in different phases. I, again, I would say now I think the Labour left has become generally more consistently anti-imperialist than, than it was in the past, um, partly because of Ireland and the kind of post-Harold um, Wilson, uh, you know, like sending troops into Northern Ireland. I think that that did um, cohere a wing of the Labour left, which is, which is better on imperialism. And obviously then, you know, the real divergence again with the Iraq war, um, and Tony Blair's position as a Labour right winger of a kind of social imperialism, social kind of imperialist occupation, but linked to social justice. Uh, and then the Labour left saying, no, we think this is just, you know, it's just an imperialist invasion. This has got nothing to do with like freeing the people of Iraq. Um, so I guess, again, the, like the divergence is, like, have become clear in Labour, which again points back to whether Labour still really is a broad church, whether it is actually just increasingly... Um, you know, very different ideological currents at work within the party. I'd like to pick up on this because I think this is a really interesting idea, Simon, your sort of suggestion that the Wilson government perhaps turned to social issues because they thought, or not social issues, but um, issues of kind of race and gender um, and homosexuality because they felt that the kind of broad social change um, in terms of what we traditionally think of about socialism and the control of the economy, that that was done and dusted. Um, and you mentioned the decriminalization of homosexuality. You could also have mentioned the decriminalization of abortion mm-hmm. um, by the Wilson government. But then in the decade that follows, you get the emergence of uh, the women's liberation movement and also of you know much more organized anti-racist campaigning within Britain. And many of the members of both of those movements come out of a left socialist tradition, um, socialist feminism being not the only strand of women's liberation feminism, but the, probably the strongest and best organized within them, and had strong affinities with that left of the labor movement, but then find themselves sitting uncomfortably um, you know, within that broad church. If, if they're finding their pew as kind of on the left side of that broad church, then maybe um, they're their views or their interests they don't see as being represented by the labor left. Mm. And I don't know quite where to go with this, but I'm interested to kind of tease out your idea that maybe that's because the labor left is preoccupied with this issue of the economy um, and this issue of the distribution of wealth and therefore doesn't sort of take on board these new, um, you know, questions about diversity representation um, and, and equality, uh, you know, in terms of gender, sexuality, and race, until fairly late in the game. And I was just wondering if you wanted to say a bit more about that. Uh, yes, and like this is one of the things I look at in the book, and, and like for me, one of the definitions of what makes the Labour left at its best, and I don't think it's always been like this, but at its best, a transformative current is the degree to which it breaks out of the parliamentary bubble or the you know the party bubble and engages with the actual real struggles of people taking place across wider society. Um, and I think like the Labour left is inconsistent on that, but at its best, and I think in the 1970s, you did see a turn by, by the Labour left as part of a general shift across the left in society as well, to engaging with these kind of movements, to um, uh, being much more um, positive around self-organisation of socially oppressed parts of society and so on. 
Um, but I think for me, you know, the Labour left has, and I'm not talking about everyone because there's always been some very good um, energetic individuals who have been, you know, both in Labour and, you know, in the social movements and so on. But generally speaking, I think the Labour left has has fallen short of a full kind of throttled engagement with these kind of social movements in a way, you know, that really um, helps build them. Because I think at the end of the day, the Labour left always comes back to the Labour Party and to, and to Parliament. And I think like, like there's this sort of, you know, there's this kind of jokey criticism of the Labour left that, you know, they think that um, going to their ward meeting and, you know, passing emotion and solidarity with the women's movement is the same as being involved in the women's movement. Now, I'm, I don't want to come across as one-sided. Obviously, if you do pass motions and it goes to conference and, you know, you can shift party policy on things, and obviously that's a good thing. I'm not saying that it's irrelevant. But I think all too often, large parts of the Labour left have definitely been sympathetic to these struggles, but not particularly engaged in them. Um, I mean, certainly if you compare the much smaller forces of, say, British Trotskyism, um, uh, or, you know, like even some parts of British anarchism and so on, um, I think you can cl- more, like more clearly point to kind of a much more energetic engagement with those kind of forces and ideas uh, than you got from a large part of the Labour left during that period. So I think there's there's always, the you know, the pull between, you know, the sympathy and solidarity with these movements. But then also for a Labour Party member, how do you practically turn the women's movement into votes? Um, like, how do you practically turn the fight around anti-racism into votes? And I think there's a lot of Labour Party members, I'm not saying on the left, but certainly Labour Party members who, who, who have historically shied away from these things because they think it will lose them votes. And at the end of the day, you know, getting into Parliament is the most important thing. Um, and you certainly saw that around Brexit. And I think a large part of the problem that, say, Corbynism had was that it didn't re- Corbyn himself a lot of his followers didn't want to engage with the more complicated difficult arguments around for instance around racism and nationalism they wanted to just talk about housing wages you know kind of the bread and butter social democratic stuff which is important um but if the main argument is over nationalism and racism and you'll say well hey, like what about housing over here because you think that's a vote winner compared to you know the complicated messy business of you know, like having arguments which might potentially lose you votes, um, then, yeah, I think, you know, like that is a fault line that runs through the Labour Party and also the Labour left as well. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more to say about it, but I guess those are some initial thoughts. And I guess just to pick up before we sort of lay this issue down, Steve, but I just wanted to loop back to Steve's opening comments about kind of coalitions when you were talking about the progressive dilemma and so you mentioned coalition building with liberals and then you brought in the SDP and the Greens. But it does, in terms of thinking of these social movements, also raise the question of what, if anything, is the left's relationship to the emerging environmental movement? Because particularly, I mean, Steve and I both you know, are teaching, um, you know, teaching undergraduates um, and a lot, of, a lot of the left energy comes with this perceived existential crisis around the environment, right? And how, in terms of campus activism, how is the left engaging or are they engaging yet with that kind of grassroots energy um, or are the same limitations that maybe stop them from wholeheartedly engaging with feminist or anti-racist activism kind of inhibiting their ability to maybe harness some of 
some of that youthful activism on environmental issues? Um, yes, I think that, I mean, even under Corbynism, I think some of the engagement around the environmental issues was um, not as strong as it could have been. Uh, and I think that goes back to some of the points we were raising before. Um, and I think, again, for your average Labour Party member, even someone on the Labour left, sort of, you know, the, the school student walkouts, the climate strikes, um, uh, the Labour left obviously support these things and think they're good and like, oh, you know, you know, well done on the young people for taking to the streets, you know, like really positive. But how do you really turn that into electoral strategy? Um, how do you transform that energy into something that works at the ballot box? And I guess that's always the problem that the Labour left will have, because, I mean, from my perspective as a, as a, as a slightly unreconstructed Marxist, I would say that, you know, the climate change crisis poses incredibly revolutionary um, problems and potentially releases um, revolutionary energy because it's such an existential, you know, threat and it goes right to the core of how capitalism functions and its metabolic relationship with the planet. So that's why I think so many young people are so mobilised and energetic and, you know, I'm not saying they're all revolutionary socialists or anything like that, but, you know, it certainly unleashes, as you said, uh, Laura, a lot of energy. Um, like, How does Labour deal with that and I mean often what happens of course is you might get a good Labour left MP speaking um, at a rally um, and showing solidarity and, and and so on but 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 how does that really connect in an organisational way and I think this is again the problem for the Labour left I think it's very hard for them to really translate that into um, into anything meaningful and of course you know I'll just kind of finish on this point I think like in terms of Labour being a coalition then you also have the issue that there are parts of that coalition, like, you know, there are some trade unions affiliated to the Labour Party who are frankly incredibly backward on the environmental question. You know, they are supporting um, expansions of runway of um, runways at um, airports. They, they, are, they are supporting um, very carbon-heavy jobs because they see them as technically um, uh, uh, skilled jobs and therefore well-paid jobs and obviously a job of a trade union is to protect its members. But... Um, so you have, you know, like that wing of the Labour coalition, which is acting at completely diametric opposites to another wing of the, you know, potentially quite radical wing of that progressive coalition. And like, how do you square that circle? And again, the Labour left doesn't really, doesn't necessarily have answers to that, I don't think. Well, Simon, you, you mentioned the C word um, a while back, um, Corbyn, Corbynism. And I... I just wondered if we could just sort of focus on that because we, we've been sort of looking at it from, you know, the issue is very kind of broad historical terms just to try and put things into a bit of context. Um, I mean, the Labour left is, you know, there have been moments in the Labour Party where the Labour left has had more influence than not. But generally speaking, it hasn't had, had much influence in the party for all kinds of institutional ideological reasons. Um so, you know, it's had little flurries in the 30s, in the 50s, and obviously there was the, the 70s and early 80s, the Benite phase, um, and then comes Corbynism. I mean, how would you, um, how would you characterise Corbynism as, as is it part, part of that tradition or did it break with, with some elements? Um, and, and obviously it did try to bring in some, I mean, it, at one point, Jeremy Corbyn said he turned the Labour Party into a social movement. It did. It did seemingly have these strategic ambitions. I mean, how would you how would you characterise Corbynism and um, in terms of that that tradition that we're talking about? 
I would probably say Corbynism was largely a return to some of the um, traditional labor left policies of the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I won't just say Benism, because I think Benism was a was a particular thing, but certainly similar to the kind of politics that Labour had at that point. Um, and but obviously, for lots of young people, uh, it was new. Like these were fresh ideas coming off the back of thirty years of neoliberalism and monetarism, and you know, ten years, you know, like several years of austerity. Um, you know, the idea of um, wealth redistribution, of, of you know, of tackling kind of these corporate giants of uh, restoring, you know, rights that have been lost, you know, of um, maybe even new ways of thinking about how to run the economy. Um, hugely exciting and very motivating. Of course, we saw that in the absolute ballooning of Labour's membership, you know, an extra 200,000 members or something like that joined. So um, uh, I would say, though, that like, if you actually read the manifestos, you know, it is sort of... Um, they're not as radical as the 74 manifesto or the 83 manifesto. Um, now, obviously, people on the Labour right might say, thank goodness for that, because the 83 manifesto is, of course, famously derided as the longest suicide note in history. Um, slightly unfairly, in my view, but of, of course, I would say that. Um, uh, but nevertheless, you know, I think the way that Corbynism kind of portrayed itself or thought of itself was 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 a bit contradictory because on the one hand it was saying these are incredibly new exciting radical ideas and we're gonna you know kind of put socialism back on the agenda and on the other hand of course it was sort of um kind of the same people saying hey don't be scared of Jeremy Corbyn he's no more radical than your average Norwegian uh, prime minister sort of what's the um like what's the big deal and so like there was kind of two narratives at work around Corbynism one that was meant to be you know, don't fear change. Corbynism is actually not that radical. It's just going to realign Britain with kind of Northern European, Scandinavian, social democratic values. And then, of course, another argument of it, which was that, you know, this is absolutely groundbreaking, exciting um, socialist um, uh, uh, stuff, which is going to fundamentally shift the nature of British capitalism. Um, and I think Corbynism itself couldn't really make up its mind around that. On, on the question of... Uh, Corbyn saying that uh, I've transformed Labour into a social movement. Um, I think that goes to the core of the problem. Um, uh, Corbyn did not transform the Labour Party anywhere near enough. Um, and indeed, when Momentum was first launched, of course, Momentum was pitched. There was that article that um, Clive Lewis, um, who's a Labour MP, wrote in the New Statesman. And he said, he said, Momentum will be two things. It will be kind of like a factional platform within Labour, he didn't use those, like those exact words, but, you know, Momentum will be there to fight the fight within Labour, to support Corbyn, to put forward more left MPs, to push left policies and so on. But it will also be the bridge to the social movements outside of Labour. And it will connect the Labour Party under a left leadership with, you know, the housing struggles, with the struggles around women's rights, around, you know, refugee rights and so on in a way that hasn't been done before. And it was the second part where Momentum and the Labour left more generally completely failed. Um, and I think that that was one of the reasons why Labour ended up being actually relatively isolated at the ballot box, um, part shade 2017. But certainly I think it was the failure to get out of the um, Westminster bubble. It was the failure to escape the factional heat and, and you know, terrible kind of gut-wrenching arguments that were going on within the Labour Party and build something outside of Labour that mattered to 
quote unquote ordinary people, like people who are not, you know, obsessed with watching Prime Minister's Question Time every Wednesday or, you know, kind of read the left press or anything like that. People who are struggling around a whole range of things, low wages and so on. And the Labour left didn't build those things, you know, didn't really manage to to engage with any of those struggles, partly because it was so bogged down in kind of trench warfare within the Labour Party itself. And I think that was the real failure in that sense of Corbynism, because because I think it was always unlikely that Corbyn would win an election unless wider politics shifted more generally. Um, and then because they didn't build those movements, it means that now Corbyn's been ousted uh, and indeed even might be expelled from the Labour Party kind of full stop. Um, you know, it might, like, might not be the Labour Party candidate in his, in his constituency at the next general election. I mean, like, that's how much the Labour right have driven, you know, like, like sort to punish um, 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 uh, people like Corbyn. Um, now the Labour left might end up with nothing after all those years of, of fighting. Whereas like, if it had have built those things, I think it would have been a much healthier, much stronger position um, than it is at the moment. If we want to go in a sort of, you know, impact of Brexit way, mm. I was curious on, I mean, when you talked about the Corbyn um, manifesto and, you know, sort of making analogies back to, to 74 in terms of it not being so overly radical. But um, one of the things about the left in, in 74, right, is this this questioning of Europe and the European project as whether it's beneficial to the working classes in Britain. Um, and you see the consequences of that with Wilson's renegotiation um, of the agreement with the European community and the referendum, right, as a way of kind of putting to bed this issue um, within the left and ultimately this huge endorsement of staying in the European Union. But those divisions, thinking about divisions between the left and the right and the Labour Party um, in the past five years have, you know, they've been about um, about social policy, about the extent of nationalization, but they've also been about Europe, right? And in places where you've seen real conservative gains in the so-called red wall, right? The fact that, you know, Europe was very much at play there, um, right? And in in that we see Johnson's potential weakening in those areas, it's, you know, partly discussed with him as leader, but also it's the falling way of Europe as a political issue. Um, but how do you see the question of, of, of Europe and the question of a, you know, skepticism maybe of the cosmopolitan that the, cosmopolitanism that the labor right takes for granted as a good thing, arguably, um, as kind of playing into this, this left-right schism? Uh, that, that's a huge uh, topic. Um, let me think. Um, I feel that, uh, well, I mean, let me uh, uh, kind of preface m m my answer by saying that all the way through the Corbyn years, I was, I was a, uh, a very strong left Remainer, um, so I know some people listening to your podcast might like turn off at this point, but I was a very strong left Remainer in the sense, not that I um, loved the neoliberal EU and, you know, everything that came with it, um, but I felt that the Brexit that was being pushed at that time with the balance of forces in the country as it was and the kind of social and political forces pushing Brexit most strongly, um, it would only turn out in a reactionary way and i think that you know the fact like during the first referendum the bulk of the labor movement the labor party most of the trade unions and so on um anti-racist campaigners um uh were very worried about what brexit might be and campaigned against it i think tells you a lot about where the labor movement was at that point 
Um, part of obviously the massive falling out on the Labour left and you know the reason why lots of people don't speak to each other anymore is partly because obviously Corbyn and the people around him, well, some of them would actually just very pro-Brexit themselves, although they would call it Lexit or a workers-led Brexit or something like that, although it was never really clearly established what those things meant, um, I don't think. Um, so they went ranged from actually we think Brexit's a good thing and, and like even if the Tories do it, you know, like it's better for uh, the UK to be out of the EU than to be in it, all the way through to people who said, well, I'm a bit sceptical of Brexit, but, you know, the vote happened. It is what it is. We've got to win an election. We've got to keep going. Um, so, and I think, like, within that discussion, there was obviously a big, you know, a big argument about how the Labour Party could orientate itself because it was so... Like Labour more than any other party was so split on that question. Um, you know, like as you said, so many of the northern voters, um, generally older, um, not particularly like not necessarily work anymore, you know, kind of like ex trade unionists. Um and again these are generalizations, but you know, they like them thinking one thing about the EU and then young cosmopolitan, more likely to be um um, uh, black and minority ethnic young workers in the cities thinking a different thing and of course all of, you know and then everyone in the middle voting Labour but like really split on this question and uh, and Corbynism couldn't couldn't square the circle um, I don't think it was just Brexit that delivered the 2019 election results um, although I think obviously it was a big factor I think even if Labour had had its 2017 position um, I mean, it probably wouldn't have lost as many seats, but I don't think it would have won that like that election. Um, I don't think Labour necessarily had plotted a path to electoral victory by 2019. And if you read Owen Jones's book um, on it, it was quite clear that even by 2019, the Corbyn project itself was exhausted and they had no real strategy around how to, you know, carve out the kind of space they'd managed to create in 2017. Um, so, yeah, like I think those are like some kind of overall general thoughts around... Um, around like like what the EU debate was and like what it meant for um, people within the Labour left. Um, I think it does also just point to a deeper crisis of Britain and, you know, like the identity. I mean, obviously Britain itself is, you know, kind of within crisis in terms of um, uh, um, potentially breaking up, but um, hollowing out of bourgeois institutions or our understanding of bourgeois institutions um but it is being done by forces from the populist right rather than from the radical left more often than not and i think you know obviously you can see that in the us around trump um who might be making a comeback if like biden doesn't manage to you know to, like doesn't manage to get his act together so yeah like i think these are like these are real serious problems that kind of social democracy is struggling to grapple with because social democracy is part of the mainstream even corbyn led social democracy is part of the mainstream arguably so we're in we're in a kind of post-brexit era now it's happened we're also but labor is also on the labor left are in a kind of post corbyn um corbyn corbynite period now um and i mean 20, the 2019 election was obviously a very bad result for the labor party um um, support to Jeremy Corbyn would say, well, that was because it was about Brexit. Um, you know, the pop, the pop, the policies were all popular, um, and Jeremy would have been popular, but he was attacked by the media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, 
And and the unfortunate, I mean, unfortunately for for the Labour left is that it is associated, at least, well, I'm not saying it's failure, but it is associated with electoral failure. You know, 2019, 1983, this is all very unfair, but it's nonetheless castigated. And even in the 1950s, the Bevanite kind of split, it's split, that that, that has seemed to be the reason why Labour lost 55, maybe 59. I mean, if nothing else, the Labour right is quite good at blaming the Labour left for certain for certain election defeats, and and obviously we're, we're overlooking. I'm, I'm deliberately overlooking 2017. You might want to bring that that in. But how does the what, what is the what is the future of the Labour left um, in a in a post Corbyn post 2019 kind of environment? Because some of the th- many of the things you're, you you've talked about. They're still there. I mean, um, you've got you got the Socialist Campaign Group, which is ironically bigger now, I think, than it's ever been. It's got more MPs in it. But they seem to be, you know, it's not clear what, what their role is in terms of a Labour-left strategy. Um, Laura Pidcock, because she lost her seat, and then, you know, she, she's although she was on the NEC, now she's retiring from the NEC. It just seems that, you know, the course of the Labour left, even though it came so close, 2017 is, is the election everyone talks about as being, you know, going against the grain of the Labour left and electoral failure. Um, I mean, the Labour left seems to be more more in a state now than it's than it's ever been before. And yet it was very strong until relatively recently. And I just wonder, you know, we've been throwing big questions at you all, 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 all day long, um, Simon. But what what is how would you characterise the Labour left now and what, and what future does it have in in Keir Starmer's Labour Party. Just on the electoral question first, because I think obviously that is, um, I mean, that for the Labour left is the £64 million question, um, because if they want to take over the Labour Party again and form a government, they, I mean, the points that you made, Stephen, are the points that your average Labour Party, you know, member thinks it's like well are you actually ever going to be able to win an election you know um are you going to be able to win a council um under labor left kind of leadership let alone like anything else um and i think this is where i mean when i talk about this more in the second edition of my book like i think that the labor left you know it's one of those things like it is a completely legitimate expression of politics within within the labor movement i mean it is those people who are reformists, not revolutionary, but believe that, you know, you can try and use Parliament to bring in some kind of more social democratic, some kind of socialist system. That is a legitimate political current within the Labour movement and 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 the Labour Party. Um, and indeed, millions of people historically in Britain have have thought, thought those things and also fought for those things. Um, the problem that we have in Britain is a very old capitalist imperialist country, which is generally quite a conservative country, really. Um, certainly its electorate are generally conservative. I mean, both small C and big C, of course. I mean, the Conservative Party is the most successful um, electoral political party in history. Um, the problem that the Labour left has is that they have to be in Labour because of first past the post. Um, they have to, you know, grind out their arguments and positions within the Labour Party, fight for seats, fight for, you know, space at conference, fight for policies, because to leave the Labour Party is to go the way of the independent Labour Party in the 1930s. In other words, uh, disintegration, or indeed, you know, as the SDP kind of had problems in the 80s or the 
um, uh, the 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 Change UK group, you know, the um, like Chuck Muna's lot under Corbynism. Um, it is bleak outside of the Labour Party if you like if you leave. So Labour left is wedded; it's stuck in the Labour Party. Um, but not just pragmatically, as I said before, like they do honestly believe that the Labour Party is the best vehicle the British working class has created to fight for socialism. But at the same time, it's also not. Um, and it is uh, structurally incapable of really being radical, I think, which again, it goes back to Law's points about the Labour Party's, um, the Labour left's fight for democratic reform. But it means every time the Labour Party goes to the electorate, with even a moderately left of centre manifesto, um, it is subjected to the most, you know, howling barrage of abuse from the media, from the establishment, from other people in the Labour Party. You know, like Labour right MPs are not, um, they are not shy about denouncing, <laughs> denouncing the Labour left's manifestos and its leaders and you know, like there was like John Woodcock MP who just got up and said, obviously vote for me in my seat, but I don't want the leader of my party to ever be prime minister. Um, you know, and this kind of thing happens all the time whenever the Labour left kind of gains any ground. You know, it was, there were similar echoes of it under, under Benism, not that, you know, Tony Benn, like even won the deputy leadership position. So like the Labour left is, is forced to try and compete in these elections around, you know, the left policies that it can get. Um, but it's very hard to translate those policies into actual votes. And I think that goes back to my point before, which is that, I mean, I was campaigning for Labour in the 2019 general election. And um, I mean, even things like the free broadband policy it just went down like a lead balloon. Like people thought it was just, you know, it was like they didn't get it. They thought it was too expensive or, or you know, they weren't sure what, like, why it was a priority. Even Labour voters in their heads would go, well, I'd rather they spent the money on the NHS, so why are they focusing on broadband? Um, and, you know, there was no clear argument around these things. And if you can't convince the British electorate to vote for broadband, you know, then, um, you know, then like, the more radical policies are completely out of grasp of, um, of the Labour left. So, like, again, I think there's more of a... You know, there needs to be much more fundamental rethink around socialist strategy. Like, what is the route through the elections? Like, how much can you actually get through an electoral process in which, you know, the Labour Party itself is a progressive coalition, which has to hold together its different um, um, its different constituent parts. Um, and this is the fun thing I'll say on this, obviously. It means every time the Labour left faces a defeat, um, there's always the hunt for traitors. Um, it's not really about you know, look like look like a serious interrogation of like their own strategy. It's like, ah, well, you know, it was the Blairites, they did it for us. Or it was, um, you know, these left Remainers, they did it for us. Or it was the media, or it was this, or it was that. Um, and of course, like these these kinds of arguments will always exist. There will always be these kind of debates. You know, like you'll never be able to go to the election with a British media that is very pro the Labour left. You will always have a structural bias against transformative politics in the conservative British media. So, you know, you can't just always blame that. You need to find ways of overcoming it. So I would just say that on the electoral thing, because obviously that is, you know, key. Um, and just on the just on the future of the Labour left now, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, um, Keir Starmer's routing of the Labour left has been, has been pretty thorough, I think. Um, and indeed, it, I mean, so many have been expelled now, um, the, 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 the manifesto pledges that he said he would defend have all been completely junked. 
Um, Corbyn himself is out. Um, you know, it's sort of, um, it's kind of what Kinnock did in the 80s, but sped up much more quickly, I think. I think I think Starmer has been able to do to the Labour left what Kinnock took um, several years to do. Um, but I also think it points to, again, the problem of the Labour Party for the Labour left. I mean, you know, there's all these things where, you know, Momentum or groups will send out emails saying like, well, you know, there's a real fight now at conference. We have to get good policy into conference. And it's like, I mean, you could have good policy at conference, but the Labour leadership could also just ignore it, like they've always done. Um, you know, there's no there's no institutional or structural way that the Labour left can really hold any power um, at this point, unless it starts winning selections to become MPs, um, unless it starts winning lots of council seats and then can, you know, populate the NEC with council representatives and MP representatives, unless the Labour left really fights in the trade unions and tries to get more radical trade union general secretaries, which, by the way, it you know, under Corbynism, it didn't touch the trade unions with a barge pole. Um, and I think was punished as a result because it couldn't in the end rely on the trade union leaders to to, to be um, consistent allies of the transformative agenda. Um, so yeah, like I think the Labour at the moment is in a very difficult situation. Uh, I will just finish on this because I think that having said all that, um, the Labour left, if it can get out of its sort of stupor and focus on the cost of living crisis, the environmental crisis, you know, the mobilisations, the protests, get out into the communities and help, you know, alongside the trade unions and so on, then I think that would really strengthen the Labour left because it would help rejuvenate it and give it a sense of purpose rather than just the constant, you know, depressing struggle within the Labour Party to try and get a particular policy passed at conference, which then gets ignored. Um, so I think that has to be the real shift for the Labour left now. If it's going to have any hope in the next 10 years of even having a chance of making a comeback. Simon, this was a pessimistic turn for our podcast to take. And I have to say, um, as someone who you know started out and still thinks of herself as a historian of the left and the media, I have, there's a bit of me that was uncomfortable with the idea that this is an insurmountable problem because the media will always be against the left. And I'd sort of you know like to pivot to one of Steve's favorite phrases from our podcast, the Overton window, right? The question is how you shift it um, to the left so that the media too can get behind it, right? And there have been moments when not the entirety of the capitalist press, you know, in scare quotes, has gotten on board with a transformative agenda, but say after 45, where there has been a political space for change that looked different. And I am no Corbynista, you know, as listeners to this podcast will know. But I do think 2017 started to be a moment, right, where, as you say, Simon, there was engagement with grassroots outside of the formal structures of the Labour Party that helped to shift the conversation and helped to shift the window of the kind of politics of the possible to the left. And maybe that is, to end on a more optimistic note, you know, the way forward, but it just has to be done in a more sustained way and more effectively, you know, to try to move the conversation so that even the hostile capitalist media, right, might be able to get behind the idea that there, there's an alternative to the status quo, even within small C and big C conservative Britain. I don't know. I'm feeling optimistic this morning. Uh, I guess it's worth me just saying that, I mean, it's not that I'm saying that the um, that the capitalist press is an insurmountable kind of obstacle. I just think that the like, like the point I was making is that, uh, and maybe I didn't make it um, very well, is just that 
the Labour left always looks for obstacles, why it failed. Um, and so the press always comes up as like a key thing, you know, the press is like against us. Um, uh, and obviously you can shift the press, like, you know, you, like, you can move the Overton window. Um, but again, I think you need to decide, or Corbynism or the Labour left needs to decide, is it an insurgent force which is, you know, creating a rupture and a break with the status quo, or is it a kind of gradual moving things slightly, slightly, slightly um, as much as it can? Um, or maybe it's trying to do both, or maybe it's ending up doing neither. I, like, I guess that has to also be part of the part of the discussion. Right. So um, our listener can decide whether they want to um, leave this podcast on a on a happy note or on a on a more doom doom laden note. Um, although, given what I think most of our listeners will probably be, if if they think the Labour left is is in trouble, they might actually be celebrating that. I don't know. They can, they can maybe tell us. That I'm wrong in that, but this has been a you know, really sort of interesting uh, discussion, Simon. And I would just to say, as I said right at the start, I would I would strongly urge um, anybody that wants to go into some of the details that we've been sort of skating over. I mean, Simon's been absolutely right. We've been asking him some very big questions and been very unreasonable in expecting him to to come down with sort of relatively brief answers. Um, I strongly recommend that you uh, you either buy Simon's book. Um, now or wait uh, a few months for the for the second edition where I'm, I'm guessing I mean you've been trailing some of what your thoughts are about Labour around 2019 and post 2019 the Labour left so uh, I'll look forward to um, to seeing that um, when it when it finally comes out um, so um, my, my job is to chair and therefore to end um, this podcast on an appropriate appropriate note and so just want to thank Laura for co-presenting again um, and to Simon for being our guest and for um, giving us some really good insights. Thanks so much, Simon. Thank you very much, everyone. That was great.